Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 46, Transforming Trauma into Triumph with Tanja Miles. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Center. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and the new children's book, Mommy's Getting Sober. My wife, Kira, and I were in our addictions for over 10 years together in a shared recovery for over twice that long. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, I talk with Tonja Miles, whose book, From the Crack House to the White House, blew me away with his unflinching look at how personal and intergenerational trauma impacts addiction and other mental health issues, and how healing from these things is not only possible, but can create lasting positive impact in the world. We talk about a variety of subjects around recovery, family healing, community outreach, and more. All this after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. I'd also like to let you know that Windmill Wellness Ranch now has a free course available to any family or friends of anybody with any addiction. The course is available at windmillfamilycourse.com. Once you go and sign up for free, you'll get a weekly email pointing you towards blog posts, videos, and podcast episodes that help carry a message of hope. Sign up today at windmillfamilycourse.com. Welcome back. Without any further ado, let's have that interview with Tanja Miles. Welcome to the show, and why don't you take a moment, introduce yourself, and tell us what you're doing on a show called Addiction and the Family. Hey, what's good? Thank you so much for having me. My name is Tanja Miles, and I am all about this life, and I call life L-I-F-E, living in freedom every day. From addiction, I've been in recovery for over 36 years, and my mom was an alcoholic, my dad was a functioning addict. So I know, you know, firsthand what it feels like to be someone in recovery and so how to even live in a household with someone who's going through addiction issues. So I'm just grateful for your show and the fact that you have this so we can have these conversations and we can push hope. That is exactly what we're doing. So I love that. So I read your book. I just thought it was amazing. 
He packs so much into a short period of time. The book's not like a 300, 400, 500 page book, but there's so much in there that I think, first of all, just beautifully vulnerable, very real, and talking about a lot of things that people are kind of afraid to talk about. And do you mind talking just a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what goes into that story? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that, you know, beautiful rendition or information about it, because it was truly a labor of love, I must say. And you're right, you know, it's only, I think, maybe 101 pages. That was intentional because a lot of the stuff in it was so heavy. And I wanted to take people on this journey that would totally be emotional, that would totally trigger some people. But I also wanted to be vulnerable because I wanted people to know no matter what you've done or what been done to you that there's always hope and so I wrote the book because I never wanted to write a book to be honest I'm not even a reader I'm called a reluctant reader now I'll read a policy book all day and I've let people write my life story and in their books documentaries tv shows and stuff like that but because a national streaming organization that I can't say the name of, they're going to do a story on my life in uh, September 2024. And so I wanted to get my story out, even though it's out there, all my stuff is out there. But there are some things that I had not really shared. But the most important thing was, is that it looked like they were really trying to not pick on, but like, tell us more about your father, because my dad was really you know, militant. And I'm glad he was. And I wasn't trying for them to make him out of, you know, daddy dears or something. So I wanted to tell my story, my voice, my choice. And it was a labor of love. But can I tell you, it was hard to write. I had a ghostwriter. I'm not all that smart. But, you know, it was like going back to every crime scene for me or everything or every trauma scene. You know, I'm in therapy, but I ended up taking EMDR therapy. But then also I got an emotional support dog or a service dog. And that helped me through the process. But yeah, it's a heavy read. But, you know, I tell people, I said, look, when you get stuck, you know how the story ends because I'm still here. And that is such a beautiful observation that when you're reading something like this to know like, okay, the book would not have been written if it ends with you like falling off a cliff. <laughs> right. The book is about hope and it's about strength and resilience. But it's also about, like you said, a lot of difficult things. You talk about trauma, um, sexual trauma specifically, but not exclusively. Um, you talk about sex and love addiction. You talk about chemical addiction. Talk about all the things were let in there. And towards the end of the book, you talk about the idea that you didn't realize this was the result of trauma. Like you knew what happened to you, but there wasn't always a direct link. And I think that's true of so many people because I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor. So between those things, you know, you go in thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to a lot of people about how to stay sober, but really very quickly, often in the first session, it's like, no, we're going to talk about what inspired that, what made it necessary to escape ourselves. And that comes up a lot in your book, what made it necessary to escape yourself, how you escaped yourself, and then how you found your way back to yourself. And do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, you know what? Again, I talk about it in the book, and if you get the book, you can read a lot about it. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I was always told that I had purpose. And I was this little girl with buck teeth with the big forehead that I still have. And I just loved entertaining folks. And so that was kind of my jam as a little girl. And that little girl died, and nobody grieved for her. And so through that journey, I had people in my life, particularly my parents. I dedicate the book to my parents because they did the best of what they could without a lot of resources for their little, you know, brown skin girl. 
And they were the first people to show me unconditional love. And I really put them through a lot. But it was my mom and dad and my grandmother, the real Medea, and my other grandmother and teachers throughout my whole life who told me, Tanja, you have purpose. You know, why are you just so mean? Why are you just so angry? That was the word. I wasn't mean. I was just angry all the time. And so finally, when the pain had a name, it all makes sense. I was not crazy. I was wounded. So my dad trained me to fight while wounded. He didn't know what to do. Uh, he was a military vet. And then when I went to the military, they trained me to fight while wounded. So I kind of grew up fighting all my life. I mean, even as a little girl, I was a preemie. I came out the womb, you know, fighting. So I've been fighting all my life. And then when addiction set in, that took that fight to a whole nother level. Because every minute, sometimes every breath was a fight for my life. And most of the times, I did not want to live. I mean, I punished myself most of my life with the risky behavior and stuff like that. But I, I think what really helped me to find myself is that that little girl who died, she did not die. And so now I used to refer to her as her. You know, I am her. You know, I am still here. I just couldn't protect her. And so now I can. And thank you for the work that you do with my therapist. I know she asked me one time, she's like, Tanja, so what would you tell little Tanja? And I'm like, are we doing this right now? Really? I'm a certified peer support specialist. I mean, my husband and I, we've had the first licensed faith-based treatment center in the state of Louisiana. We opened in 2003 and we sold it in 2010. So I'm like, girl, really? That's what you're asking me? But you know what? I found my way back to her because she was always there. The hopes and dreams were always there. It just got hijacked. You know, my brain got hijacked by addiction and a whole lot of trauma. And so it was a hard road to find myself back. It was a hard journey. But now, you know, I can look in the mirror and I see her. I still see the same buck teeth, still see the same forehead. But more than that, I see the same little girl who just loved to entertain people and make people happy. The only thing is, I didn't know how to do that for myself. But now I know how to do that for me. So that's pretty cool. That is. And, you know, you and I, of course, don't have the same life story, but... I relate to a lot of things you're talking about. I had sexual trauma as a toddler and at the hands of somebody who was supposed to be protecting me. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of those things and I grew up as this angry kid, but also somebody who loved to entertain and wanted to be popular, wanted to be loved, mistook sex for love. I thought those were the same thing mm -hmm. and that I couldn't be okay without people finding me attractive in a certain way from youngest ages, you know, wanted to have uh, girlfriend, you know, in kindergarten. And yeah, it was like, oh, that's so cute. It's like, I, I wasn't being cute. This was serious business. I needed to make sure I was okay. And so you made this reference to your younger self dying and there wasn't a funeral and nobody knew that it happened. And I heard you just say, I think that you couldn't protect her, but I wonder if in all of the things you were doing, it was an attempt to protect her. Because I know in a lot of ways, I was being angry to keep everyone at bay so I wouldn't get hurt again. Oh. I was trying to be entertaining so that I'd know I'm safe. You know, if people value me in a certain way, if they value me through attraction, through entertainment, through whatever, then maybe I'll be safe. But I also hear the part where no amount of that ever actually adds up to safety. I never got to just relax and feel safe until I also did the therapy. And I'm a huge fan of EMDR. I'm an EMDR practitioner. <laughs> And that's because somebody offered it to me. And I, I went like, okay, I need to learn how to do this next. Uh -huh. <laughs> but in all of that, you know, we are trying to keep ourselves safe, but 
I really like that you're pointing out that from the outside, people can't see that. And so often people don't recognize what's really happening. They just think like, why does this child have to act this way? Mm -hmm. Why do you keep being this? Why do you self-sabotage? Why do you keep getting your own way? Why do you do these things that no one can understand? And I didn't have any explanation for it. You know, my dad tried to sit me down at one point and just say like, why are you doing the things you do? And there were no words. There was no language to say, well, okay, here's what's going on in our house that we don't talk about. Yeah. And here's what's happening to me that I've never told anyone that I don't even consciously realize. Yeah, there was no words for it. So instead it came out in these ways. And, you know, we talk about people acting out, you know, like, oh, that kid's acting out. Yeah. And that's a literal thing. When we don't know how to deal with, express or process emotions, we will act those emotions out. And that's what I was doing. Yeah, and you're right. You know, I always say that, you know, people would always ask me on my parents, you know, Tanja, what the hell is wrong with you? Nobody said, Tanja, what happened to you? Because truly I became this little monster. And you're right, you know, the fighting part was to protect myself. It was me being angry at me because I thought it was my fault. But then, of course, as you know, PTSD, fight, flight, or freeze. You know what mine is, fight. And so that was a way of me protecting myself and just really not understanding, like you said, how to verbalize what was really going on and the shame and the stigma that comes with that makes it so hard to then have all these feelings that you do not know how to process. And the only thing you know how to do is act out. That's why I'm such a fan of every kid in school should do, you know, ACEs, because again, you know how that works. And I never forget one time I was moderating a conference for an addiction treatment organization. And I've been doing this work, you know, most of my adult life. And can I tell you when the speaker got up and started talking about ACEs and here I am, I'm the moderator. I'm, you know, I'm the one supposed to keep the energy going and keep everything going. And so I'm sitting on the front row. And she's talking about ACEs. And it was not, again, and I felt like shame because, again, I had a treatment center with, you know, doctors and, and therapists and psychiatrists and stuff. And so I'm sitting here and she's talking about ACEs and scoring. And, and then I begin to score myself. And can I tell you, it took me a weekend to come to myself because I scored so high on that thing. And everything the ACEs said, if this happened, this could happen. And it did happen. And I had to keep telling myself, Tanja, you're safe. That's not you. That was you. But then I kept thinking, wow, if I'd have known that, if my parents would have known that. But, you know, another thing is, is that I told you I love to uh, entertain people. And so I used to sing. I love to sing. Love to sing. I always thought I was going to sing on Broadway. And I would have been on track to do that. But life happened for the sexual trauma and then addiction and all that stuff. But I sung in this choir that Dr. Valerian Smith, who's a genius, he wrote this song and he would have me sing it, not knowing anything about my life. But it went like this. I am just a child I know. Everything I am will grow. Things that hurt when I am small grows much bigger when I'm tall. And basically, I was singing my life of trauma because that trauma that was that little girl, when I got bigger, the trauma got bigger. When more trauma came, the more drama that was in my life. That's why it's so important that we have shows like this and thankful for folks who work in this field, who know how to help a person navigate those feelings and process those feelings and talk about the different options because addiction is no joke. And it's not cookie cutter when it comes to treatment. From time to time, I would always go back and look at some of the notes of the clinicians. And if I saw the same note, you have 15 people in your group and all of them had the same note, Oh, babe, that to me, that was ground for 
you got to go somewhere else. And so trauma is real, but so is recovery. And I think that the more we talk about it, the more we normalize it, the more we talk about the stigma. And again, that's why I'm so vulnerable about telling all my stuff, because I'm never going to tell you about the shine if I can't tell you about the manure. And so, uh, again, I, I can't thank you enough for having spaces and places like this where people can talk about it so there can be no judgment and no stigma. Absolutely. And that is part of the reason why I want to do what I do is to help remove stigma. And you mentioned ACEs. So just for our audience, if you're not familiar with that, that's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. And it was a landmark study done a number of years ago now. But I remember when it first came out, I was just thinking like, this is something everybody needs to know about. And they had a pretty large sample size initially, and I believe it's been expanded since then. But they sampled a whole bunch of people across the board, asked them about various adverse childhood experiences. You know, parents ever get divorced? Do you, anyone in your household be you know, incarcerated? Did you ever witness violence? They just went through a series of questions like this. And it's about 10 questions or so. Mm -hmm. And they found that if you answered yes to even one question, your life was going to be impacted your physical health, your mental health. But when you get up around five yeses, you're six times more likely to become an alcoholic. If you hit six yeses, your life expectancy goes down by 20 years. And I remember looking across that just going like, oh man. Now these are averages that don't assume that somebody gets in recovery, that they get therapy, that they do anything about it. They're just saying, if this happens for the average person, and I hate to say as a therapist, I know the average person doesn't get a lot of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the average in the field is if somebody comes in to get therapy, the average is, is that they get three sessions total. Now, you've done some therapy. I did years of therapy with really talented therapists. I can tell you, three sessions was not even going to like be enough to find out what happened. No. What that really tells me, though, I think, you know, okay, so that's average. I have a lot of clients that come in for months or even years because they know they've got a lot to work on. So if the average is three sessions, what that really means is a whole lot of people got one session and walked back out and said, I'm never doing that again because it's too painful to look at those things. And they don't recognize how much risk they're at and how much that risk ripples out within families. Because you talked about, yeah, I absolutely agree. Everybody in your family was doing the best they knew how. You were doing the best you knew how. I was doing the best I knew how, and all the people around me were. And if they had problems with rage, if they had problems with alcohol abuse, if they had problems with sexual addiction, that was still them doing the best they knew. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I like to think you're doing what you're doing, I'm doing what I'm doing, is partly just spreading the word that there is hope, that there is solution, that just because it's always been this way in the family doesn't mean it always has to be this way in the family. Right. Because when families have knowledge, they get power. Come on. And, you know, that is the power that I want to put in people's hands. And one of the big messages that I carry in this show and in my day-to-day -day work for the family members is that even if you don't think you're the one with the problem, quote unquote, or the identified patient in the family, you still have work to do. Yeah. And that's why I love Oh, because addiction affects the entire family. And I tell clients that all the time. And as you know, you know, talking to families, it does. I mean, it can ravage and savage and rip up a family You like nobody's business. I mean, I have an older brother and a younger sister who's deceased. But my brother was the A student and was always just a great kid and never got into any trouble. Well, then that was me, the middle child, who was always, always, always in trouble. Every time the school would call and say, you know, hello, Miss Richard, 
this is Eden Park. And she's already know, well, what Tanja did today. And I had other siblings going to school. She already knew, like, I know it's Tanja. And my little sister, who was three years younger than me, and uh, in the book, I think I talk about it a little bit, there was some resentment there because I took up a lot of good years from my parents that my parents could have been spending helping her. And so all of the attention was on me. And I regret that. And so I know that that affects families. And I know that, you know, when people think, oh, I'm just using, I'm only hurting myself. And I'm like, no, look what you're doing to your mom or your father or your sibling or to your friends. And so it's a disease scientifically. And it's also a dis-ease that just something's not right. And then if you don't deal with that trauma, that trauma will eventually deal with you. And a lot of times what it becomes too is generational trauma. And so I was determined, I was determined that I was going to break that cycle of addiction in my family. And I'm grateful to say that I did because after I think a year after I got off drugs, I was able to get my mom some help. Now I had to go to the coroner's office and she had to be PEC. She had to be picked up in the back of a police car that was traumatic. And, you know, my mom, when I went to see her to give her clothes, the third day she was in detox, she told me, she said, I do not want to see you again. You are not my daughter. You're dead to me. You have lied. You have stole from me. I have done everything I could to help you through all your knucklehead addiction, tripping, acting a fool. And this is what you do to me. You have me picked up and a police car and you have me locked up and they're saying I'm going to be in here for a long time because you know the detox and I think she was in detox because back then you could stay in detox for 30 days but I never forget how hopeless and how bad that it made me feel like I really did portray my mom who stuck it out on me but can I tell you I didn't go pick her up because I thought that she was still mad at me so when my dad and my siblings went to pick her up I stayed home and when she came in the house and she said, Tanja, that was the best thing that anybody could ever have done for me. I just want to let you know, I thank you and I love you. And before my mom died, she had 26 years clean and sober. And so those family curses, those family trauma, again, if we don't deal with them, they deal with us. So true. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll have more of our interview with Tanja. You have a loved one who's just gotten sober. They're trying to convince you that this time is different, that they've really changed. But their words fall on deaf ears. So much trust has been lost over the course of their addiction. Soberlink can help. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is designed to help loved ones get sober while rebuilding trust with friends and family. Small enough to fit in their purse or pocket and discreet enough to use in public, Soberlink devices combine facial recognition, tamper detection, and real-time results so you know instantly that a loved one is sober and working toward their recovery goals. Visit www.soberlink.com family to sign up and receive $50 off a device. Welcome back. All right, let's hear more of that interview with Tanja Miles. Breaking that intergenerational trauma cycle, it's so funny, just before you said that, I wrote a note about generational trauma, got to bring this up, and then you brought it up, and it was like, okay, we're on the same page here. Yes. There is such a pattern of that that people don't recognize, and I have clients who will come in, 
And one of my specialties is doing family work, running a family workshop, working with as many generations as I can get to show up. Bring me the little kids, bring me the teenagers, bring me the adults, bring me the grandparents, get them in there. Uh -huh. But a lot of times I'll have a client who will think like, oh, I'm the black sheep of the family. I'm the one who blew it. And it's like, no, this has been going on and on and on. And sometimes it skips a generation or two. Yeah. Like the genetics may skip a generation because there's not one addiction gene. It's a it's a combination and suite of genes, which means that a couple of people might just be carrying the genes almost like a recessive gene. They don't know they're carrying it. And it shows up in their kids or their grandkids. They're like, yeah. oh my goodness, how could this happen? Who? How in a million years? I was not raised that way, but you look back two, three generations, it's like, okay, addiction was running rampant. Yeah. The abuse, the trauma, all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to presume ever to know your experience or someone else's experience, but it gets touched on in your book. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the societal pressure on a black family is not the same as on a white family. True. And the societal pressure of being a woman in our society is not the same as being a man in our society. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I don't think anyone is ever brave enough to put on like an ACEs survey. Yeah. But quite frankly, those some of those outside pressures that nobody asks for or invites into their lives, those are not acknowledged enough to say that that within itself can create a trauma burden. And then it's easy from there to be a target, yep. to be used. And then everyone say like, it's because you're like this. And it's like, no, it's because I was traumatized and nobody wants to say it out loud. Yeah, and you're so right about that. You know, I call it a lot of ism, sexism, racism, classism. You know, we don't talk about that one enough because classism ain't no joke. The choir I was telling you about, I was the kid who sung in the children's choir. You know, I think I was the only one from the hood, if you would. I didn't go to private schools like all the other girls did. I didn't have uh, nice hair. You know, my hair was kinky. My skin was darker than theirs. And so I got bullied a lot. And then, of course, I was a star singer. So you got the haters, that classism piece, because I came from the wrong side of the tracks and stuff like that. And that stuff affects anybody's mental health, which can dart someone on the journey to addiction. So those things go into play. I mean, look, life ain't no joke, you know. Life and chance happens to all of us. And so when people find themselves having emotional stress or, you know, mental health challenges, they need to know that there's hope, that there's no stigma, that your brain is just like any other organ in your body. And when my brain got broken, and then you talk about, you know, being a you know black woman, a black girl who come from a strong faith component, you were told, oh, you can't talk about that. You got to keep that in the house. You got to keep that under the rug. And you just got to pray about it and plead the blood of Jesus and all that stuff I get. But baby, you know, it's like the rug I'm looking at in my house now. It's flat and it's beautiful. But if I keep putting stuff under there and piling it up, you know, I can vacuum all day and it can be clean, but there's going to be a big pile under that rug. And eventually somebody's going to trip. So we have to address it. And so we have to talk about the traditions and the trauma that comes with that. And for me, even my first suicide attempt, I was so, well, you just got to go to church more. I'm like, well, God, dog, you know, I'm already going a lot. But I tell people all the time, baby, you can have Jesus and a therapist. You can have a scripture and a script because I do them every day. You know, I quote a scripture and I take my medication. It's those kind of things that we have to talk about and we have to be real or for real, for real, like I say all the time, because it's real out here. People are hurting. And it could be from the curbside to the country club, or you can have billions, or be broke. People are hurting. And like you said, it could be 
generational. It could be from trauma. It could be something that's passed down in your genes. And, you know, I work for an amazing uh, organization, the Community Engagement Advisor with the Huntsman Mental Health Foundation. Tomorrow, we are breaking ground on the largest mental health and substance abuse research center in the country. And so I can't wait that, you know, when I die, which will be a long time from now, but my family already knew, even before I took this job, I'm like, you know, I'm going to donate my brain and my body to science to see anything that can help not only my family, but any other family, any other research to figure out that gene or whatever reason to just really get people the necessary help that they need, you know? So again, I'm all about that life, living in freedom every day. And it's going to be from telling my story, pushing resources, changing policy, speaking truth to power. But at the end of the day, having conversations like this, but the most important thing I do is when my phone rang and as a family member who said, you know, my loved ones, this is so bad and I don't know what to do. And to just really help them navigate through what some of the options are out there. And I worked a lot on 988, which I thought I would never see happen in my lifetime. And so I testified twice before it was passed. And it was a pleasure and an honor to do that. And so now I remember, you know, having conversations with families. And I'm like, look, right now, sound like your family members in distress. You know, if they're hearing voices, seeing voices, if they're contemplating suicide, you got to call 911. And the family member would say, but is there any other way because of, you know, things that, that are going on? And look, I was nine years military police. And so I know the importance of having good policing. Our country, our communities need that because we don't need a lawless society. What? That's just like having a, we're saying we're going to have no red lights, no red lights. Everybody fend for themselves. Well, baby, there's going to be a lot of wrecked up cars. And so, you know, just having resources and having to let people know there's a number now that you can call or your family member can call. Because again, you know, I'm grateful that I have a good story, but a story without resources, then all you did was just tell me a good story. You know, it's almost like saying, okay, you know, you're going to call this number or you're going to tell somebody something and EMS is going to come and they're going to go, oh, we're here, but we don't have any place to take anybody. You know, my favorite thing is to talk to people and help them navigate through that. I've been through that system myself. I've been through that system with my mom. I've also been through a system with my uncle, who I was the primary caregiver the last five, six years of his life. He was bipolar, schizophrenic, HIV, and he was on drugs. And I know people, and I can make a phone call in a minute. But I had to get him PEC one year 11 times. And then when I finally got mental health power of attorney, because it's different, then, you know, I was able to go, oh, uh-uh. You know, I had to then advocate for himself. And that's another beautiful thing that I like doing as a peer support specialist is showing people how to advocate for themselves. So powerful. You talked about 988, and yep, that's a relatively new thing. Do you mind just telling our listeners real quickly what that is? I say it's a call for help with connections to hope. 911 didn't happen until the 60s. And so it's basically where... You call the number, it's a national hotline, but it's routed to the local call center. So it, if someone calls in Louisiana, it'll go to call center in here. Or if they're you know, in your neck of the woods or wherever you guys may be, it'll go to the local call center. Now we know that anything that's new, you know, you're gonna have its challenges, but for the most part, the increase on that number, which is part of the, also the national suicide hotline has skyrocketed. I think, you know, over 5 million more calls because just last week, I had a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill with Vibrant, who basically kind of runs the whole 98. But that's what it is. It's licensed. Some states have licensed people, but all of the people are trained. 
day with compassion and respect to kind of help you on your worst day to get you to better days. Sometimes it's just talking through it with someone, but sometimes mobile crisis team and, you know, other teams might have to be called out if they're in that area to that person without law enforcement interference, but it will also connect you to local resources that you can help get you or your loved one to. So I love that. I think the more we go, it's going on two years, but it's amazing. I've seen the numbers and I've seen the data. And so it's actually working. And then what it does, hopefully it takes law enforcement out the equation, who most of them are not CIT trained, depending on where you are. And you have folks like peer support specialists or folks like you, the licensed social workers who can go out on those MCOT teams, you know, meet that person where they are, maybe talk them to whatever they're going through, but if not, then take them to treatment and then helping to change what treatment looked like. You know, I never forget when we did our facility, people ringed us because we had jazz music playing and we had live plants and we had candles going and we had waterfalls. I mean, people ringed us like, you know, y'all spending money on this for drug addicts? Are you kidding me right now? Because I wanted our treatment center to look like my house, trauma-informed. And so 988 is a game changer for our country and our community and the whole crisis continuum. We have to make sure that we're always talking to our senators and, and elected officials to make sure that if we're in crisis, like we say we are in our community, then let's act like it. I mean, there are countries who are in crisis and we're sending millions and billions of dollars to, but we have a mental health crisis here because of COVID and everything else is going on in our, our country. So 988, we should make sure that every state have the resources they need to have a call center and also have quality continuum of care to help people get the help they need because we can push hope all day, but we better be pushing some help as well. Beautifully put. I said, was I all in my feelings? Because I meant to be. <laughs> I definitely hear your passion in everything you talk about, which is beautiful. I want to circle back around to something you're talking about, that idea of you got to keep it in the house. I mean, I have a more diverse genetic background than I look, but I was raised in a very affluent area as a white boy growing up. And they're in really one of the most affluent areas in the country where the people I'm around, I mean, the kids I grew up with, you know, so-and-so's dad runs this corporation. So-and-so started this national company. This is a sports star. This is a movie star, all this kind of stuff. I was raised with, they call it Italian and then assembly. And these were basically seven years of formal lessons on how to do ballroom dancing, which by the way, has never come up again for the rest of my life which fork to use, where to place it. We had all that stuff being presented to society in a tux. None of that slowed addiction down for a second. I could look around me and see where people were struggling with chemical use. My own father did. I also know that I had my own addiction going. I wouldn't have recognized it at the time because I was not raised in a time or an area, and I don't know that anybody is still, where people could openly talk about sex and love addiction. But sex and love addiction was like running my life from earliest days. And so if I look back at that, I can say it didn't matter how much money there was. No. It didn't matter color of skin, social status, any of those things, resources available. Now, I'm never going to deny the fact that growing up in an affluent area, you had a lot more resourcing, help, support, expectations in a positive way, all that kind of stuff. I had a lot of stuff going for me and a ton of privilege. Privilege is something you can't even make it go away if you wanted to make it go away. 
But none of that slowed addiction down. None of that slowed trauma down. None of that slowed down the mental health crisis going on. And I know that a few years after I graduated, I think we lost five kids in one school year to drunk driving. Wow. And I look at all these things and just think, there's nothing that acts as a protective factor for things like trauma and addiction, except education, therapy, breaking the generational cycle. And we as the adults are the ones that can break it for the next generation. Right. If we don't do something, they're not going to be able to, at five years old or 10 years old, say, hey, you know what? I think I need some help and I need to deal with this trauma. We're going to make this go away. I think that's on us as the next generation. You're right. And it is. And I think I said earlier from the curb side to the country club, from being broke to have billions, you know, I do private recovery coaching and some of my clients are millionaires and yeah, they might have more resources and sent their loved one to treatment a hundred times and almost spent, you know, a million dollars. And that's the truth. But at the end of the day, trauma does not discriminate. Addiction does not discriminate. And so even for the Huntsman family that I work with now, I mean, they're so adamant about eradicating a stigma around mental health and addiction because they had a sister, you know, Kathleen, who died of a drug overdose and who also had mental health challenges that she didn't get treated and they had billions. And so it doesn't discriminate. And, you know, a beautiful thing was, is that when we used to do our Friday night meetings, we would have people from the Salvation Army. We would have people from all different walks of life. So you could have a person who was from the Salvation Army and right next to them could be one of the wealthiest people in our community for themselves there or with their loved one. And so at the end of the day, nobody saw color. Basically, they were just like, we need help, you know, and trauma looks different for, for different people. People use for different reasons. You know, there's many reasons why people use, but there's many roads to recovery. And so you're right. Even in our country, I mean, it does not discriminate. I, I do a lot of work around drug overdose. And so we have a team of peers that work for us and they go out. I'm a military girl. So we get the data from the crime strategy unit. Every Monday, I see who died, what was in their system, where they died. And then from there, our team would go out to those areas, pushing out free Narcan, fentanyl testing strips, but more important, resources to get people in treatment. Or we have this program called Ride or Die, where, you know, we will Uber you or, we'll, you know, you can get in the back of the car and we'll take you. And we also have a 24-hour stabilization center, which I'm one of the founding board members on. And so that makes it easier where people can now enter a treatment center 24 hours, seven days a week. You know, it's like an urgent care for people who are suffering with addiction or any kind of mental health challenges. So we really have to just talk about it more. I know I talk to my family about it. Even before I wrote the book, you know, I talked to them about it, but I've always shared my story. And I'm like, look, this is going to be my story, not y'all's. I ain't telling any family secrets. That's for, you know, you guys to tell, but I'm telling my story. You know, look, I'm getting ready to do this event for, uh, I guess I can say it, the NFLPA, where I'm going to be teaching them how to have healing circles in their homes first, because I think that healing starts in the house. We want a healthy community, we want a healthy country, but it needs to start in the house. And so teaching them kind of like what you said earlier, sit down, you know, every Tuesday around the kitchen table or outside and just go, so, hey, what's going on today? Let's just do a check-in. We're going to respect each other. We're going to do active listening. We're not going to be, you know, when somebody say something, rolling our eyes, or if it's too much parent that, you're, you know, you're giving your kid the safe space to talk about their feelings or what's going on, be it good or bad, 
to something that rocks your world. You can't just go start blowing up. Sometimes I tell parents, you have to just sit on your hands or sometimes say, excuse me, I'm going to need a minute. I'm going to walk outside. And you might want to walk outside and scream to the top of your lungs, but then you walk back in and say, okay, I heard what you said. You validated. Now, how do we talk about processing you through it or helping you to make better choices? So I think that we have to have these conversations in our house. We have to talk about mental health because for the longest, we would tell our kids, you know, you can't feel, you're too young. You shouldn't be stressed out. You can't be worried about that. Da, 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 da. And then, you know, wonder why when they grow up, they don't know what to do with their emotions because we have trained them or we have not taught kids coping skills or to let them know, baby, look, you better tell your kids about drugs because you can put them in the best, most prestigious schools in the country. It does not matter because we had our clinic. You know, most of our adolescents came from those affluent schools. And so they had the same problems as the kids in public school when it came to drugs. And so I tell parents, especially in the social media world that we live in, it ain't going away. It has its great meanings to do great things and it's had its challenges. But now kids can find out anything. So have those conversations, real conversations with your kids, because if you don't, then other people will, and you might not believe in what they tell your loved one. All right, Mar Wisner from Tanja. We're going to take just a minute and hear from one more of our sponsors, and then we'll have the last part of that interview with Tanja Miles. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support in our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, information on my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and my newest book, Mommy's Getting Sober, a children's book that also includes a guide for caregivers on how to talk to kids about addiction. All three are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. All right, welcome back. Let's hear the last part of that interview with Tonja Miles, author of From the Crack House to the White House. That circles back around to that message of keep it in the house, which I think is the same thing that I heard. Yeah, I was told, don't you go telling the neighbors what goes on in our house. And I thought, you know, my joke with that is my dad was a classically trained baritone singer. Everybody in the neighborhood knew what happened to our house. <laughs> like He was loud. Everybody knew. But we were not allowed to acknowledge it. We were not allowed to say it. We couldn't say it inside the house. We couldn't say it outside of the house. And being able to change that generational pattern, just like you were talking about, being able to say, it is okay, even if I get upset, it's still okay to speak the truth in this house. Even if I don't like what you have to say, I'd still rather hear you say it than hold it inside. Because if I really look back at my childhood, there were people who recognized on some level what was going on. They wouldn't know the details, but they knew, like, you're a neat kid, something's off. And I'm sure I have a few memories, you know, whether it was other kids or grownups asking, like, are you okay? What's going on? And I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. And I had 
pushed enough of the stuff down that I wasn't really sure myself. I wouldn't have been able to say for sure. I just knew I was angry. You know, some people say is that all addiction is born out of trauma. And I don't know for certain that that is scientifically true. I know that by the time you make it to a treatment center, there's probably trauma in your history. Uh, it's not an even playing field, you know, just like any disease. Some people have a harder time of it than others. There are some people I've met in the rooms of recovery who would say like, well, I just walked in and I, you know, put the plug in the jug, got a sponsor, worked the steps and, you know, found a higher power and I've just been doing it ever since. And I don't know what's wrong with all you people that relapse. And I'm like, I do. <laughs> I know exactly what's wrong. You know, it's not an even playing field. But another piece to it that I think is maybe not acknowledged enough is that hurting other people is traumatic. And most of us under addiction hurt other people. Going against our own values in the addiction is traumatic. Seeing ourselves get so far away from who we really are is traumatic. And so even if you walked into the trap of addiction with zero trauma, you're going to have plenty by the time you come back out the other side. And so being able to recognize those things and help people deal with it and help the family members to recognize where they have felt traumatized by what's happened. Because I work with families and every single family member will tell you why it's their fault. The parents, of course, just, oh, I must have blown it as a parent. The grandparents feel like they didn't intervene quickly enough. The siblings saw what was happening and didn't tell anyone. The kids, if there are kids, feel like they should have been a better kid. And of course, the person with the addiction is absolutely certain that it's them. So everybody needs that healing and that chance to learn and grow and get out of this idea that one person is the identified patient and the problem. And if they would just feel better, everyone else would be better because it's never that easy. And I'm reminded of uh, just this weekend, I was talking with a friend of mine and we were going to get together and he said, uh, oh man, I can't, there's this family emergency going on. I'm like, oh, I hope everything's okay. So, oh yeah, it's just family's got to go back and fly back east and deal with this thing around the family home and all this kind of thing. And I said, isn't it nice that you get to go along and be a help in the family emergency? Remember the old days when we were the family emergency? <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know what? It's so keen what you said is that people blame themselves. And you're right, because we treated adults and adolescents. And I can't tell you how many, you know, moms and dads thought it was their fault. And like I said, there's many reasons why people use. But for the most part, that's the thing. Of, and with this school in particular, because they had a 24-hour honor code. And so, you know, they would think, oh, if the other family found out that, you know, my kid was using drugs, what they knew, because the kids knew, the kids were all talking to each other. They was all buying drugs from each other, you know, and using together. I've heard so many parents like, you know, what have I done wrong? It's a bad reflection on me and things of that nature. And even with my parents, you know, look, they did the best they could. None of it was their fault. A lot of stuff I did, I did willingly. I'm not going to lie. I knew what I was doing. I was very self-aware that I was a hot mess and living so recklessly, but it's different for different people. And so, you know, we have to talk through things in our families. We really, really do. We need to sit down more and talk about, hey, what's really going on? Let's do a check-in and being intentional about it. You know, it's so funny. Now, I used to always tell people, I'm good. Or people ask me, how you doing? And I'll go, I'm good, I'm good. And having a diagnosis of PTSD and anxiety and depression. And I could be depressed sometime. And I can go back and see if I'm doing something. I'm like, I was so depressed that day. I just got up, you know, enough time to put on some makeup because I knew how to act from a little girl and just, you know, make it work, even go to work or do stuff, you know, even do interviews and just be depressed. Even when I worked with the Bush administration, a lot of that time I was depressed where it was days I wouldn't even bathe myself. My husband would have to give me a bath and I would just roll up on the couch. And then, but when it was time to 
he would help me get dressed and I walk out the door and I'm like, it's showtime and stuff like that. And just, you know, we have to talk about that amongst our families and give our loved ones that safe space, even in our home, you know, no judgment, no stigma to actually hear them and, you know, sometimes help them navigate through it. And, and, and look, even sometimes when they piss you off and they've done stuff 15 different times and you're like, I'm sick of it. And I understand boundaries. We all have to have them, you know. And then, of course, you know, some parents, they go overboard and they become addicted to the person and all their drama and codependency. So I think that, you know, it's so important that we honor, you know, folks like you who help people navigate through this thing called life. And again, I believe is that we really be open and honest with, you know, in our family and we talk about communication because look, we have so much crazy communication in our country right now. We have to sit down and talk about how are you feeling? Validate them feelings because I do a lot of work with college students and most of them don't even like talking to their parents because their parents like, well, why are you depressed? Why are you, why are you have anxiety? You don't have nothing to be anxious for. You know, all you need to do is go to college and, you know, make good grades and stay out of trouble. So what are you talking about? And so that'll shut anybody down, shut them down. So, you know, we have to do a better job. And that's why I like podcasts like yours. Well, thank you. And I love the work that you're doing. You were doing an amazing amount of work and you have been for such a long time. You were a blessing to our country. I'm just going to say that. Thank you. And, I'm going to close up with a couple questions I've been just starting to ask on this podcast because I'm really getting passionate about helping kids find a voice and being able to talk honestly with kids. I put out TikTok videos now with the hashtag honest with kids. And so, Tanja, I want to ask, growing up, what were you told about addiction? Nothing. Don't do drugs. That's it. You know, and that's was such a great question. Nothing. I mean, especially maybe when I got in middle school, but it was too late by then because I was using, don't use drugs. It's a bad thing. That was basically it. You know, back then it was the war on drugs, you know, your brain with addiction, with the air frying, you know. So, you know, not much, nothing. You had a similar situation to me where it's like it's happening in the family, but nobody's sitting down to say, hey, by the way, like it was heart disease, you'd tell your kids, right? You'd say like, hey, this runs in the family and we need to talk about it. And here's some things you could do to protect yourself, which is, I'm very grateful, a conversation I did have with my daughter by the time she was 10, because by the time I was 10, I was off and running. Nice. So the second half of the question is, what do you wish you were told about addiction as a child? I wish I was told about addiction that we had addiction that ran in our family and that we have to be a little bit more cautious than others. Like when we talk about a high blood pressure and diabetes and grandmother had cancer, you know, Papa had this, you know, Medea had this. So we have to be careful of this, you know, really talking and telling the truth about the history. If there was any, I wish I would have been told that. I also wish that being told just to say no. If someone, you know, offers you drugs, you just got to say no. Just walk away and say no. You know, a little bit more leaning in, a little bit more resources, a little bit more why. I wish that would have been told to me because even when my parents knew that I was doing drugs, it was still, you just need to stop, you know, because it's not good. Not like eventually it's going to kill your butt or it's going to take you places and spaces. And I think my dad tried to tell me that, you know, that it's going to take you places and spaces, Tanja, that you're not ready for. So I think when we really lean in more and have those conversations more, I wish I'd have had them. Again, everyone's doing the best they could, but it sounds like your parents weren't in a place to be able to say, I'm struggling with this. 
I don't want you to fall into the same trap. Right. Because it was happening in your household. We can all go and sit down in junior high and watch a film or get a lecture from a police officer or something like that. And know that stuff is well-intentioned and I hope it helps somebody. But a lot of the people I know with addiction say they looked at those films and thought like, that looks kind of cool. I want to do that. It didn't slow anybody down. If some of us, it gave us ideas. But for a family member to be able to sit down and say, I've been down this road, this is what it looks like, or I'm struggling with it now and I don't want you to struggle the same way. That's a very different conversation. Yeah, you're right, man. That's really legit because as I think about my mom, you know, who drank a lot and we all knew it, you know, we would come home sometime and she was passed out, but we never really talked about it. Or my dad, who was a functioning alcoholic, I mean, he had a good job. He went to work every day. He, you know, both my parents, we all have good work ethics. Even being when I was out there crackhead, I still had a good work ethic, but it was still never talked about. I remember being a young girl and my dad used to get off from work. He would eat dinner and then he would look at the news and he would go to the local bar and he would probably come home around maybe 9.30, no later than 10. But I remember being a little girl and even though the bar was maybe a mile away, I couldn't go to sleep until I heard the click of the door. Yeah. Yeah. So if maybe someone had been able to have that conversation. Again, we can't say it would have made the trauma go away and you never would have had any issues, but at least we have it in our mind, okay, this runs in the family. We're allowed to talk about it. That actually just like dialing 988, letting somebody know that something is going on can invite light into the situation. And addiction thrives in the dark and it shrivels in the light. When we get honest about it, something happens. And so I urge all the families out there, because I know sometimes family members will say, well, I don't want to tell grandma what's really going on because I want to worry her. I don't want to tell the neighbors because I don't want them to look bad at my kid or something like that. And I'm thinking like, if we could all be honest about this as a society, we wouldn't have maybe some of these issues that we're talking about. Or someone would say, oops, I'm falling down the hole. I know where to get help. And that would be a whole different thing. So again, I applaud you for the efforts that you're doing to create resources in the community and in the country that can help people in those situations. And Tanja, it's been fantastic having you on the show. I hope maybe sometime we'll have a chance to have you back. But before we do all that, I want to urge our listeners to read your book, From the Crack House to the White House, and tell people where they can find your book, where they can find you if they want to get a hold of you. Yeah, so you can go to tanjamiles.com, T-O-N-J-A-M-Y-L-E-S.com. And there's a whole lot of information about me and my wonderful, goofy, amazing, miracle, funny life. But the book you can buy on Amazon. Uh, you can get it in a um, Kindle. You can get a hardback or just, you know, soft copy. But the cool thing is, is that every time you buy it, one is donated to uh, a local prison in two different states. Hopefully there'll be more coming online. But you know, again, that book was a labor of love. I hope when people read it, they realize that if you are going through addiction or if you have a mental health diagnosis, you're not the only one, that there's hope and that the struggle is real, but so is recovery. And even to family members, I just want to say thank you on behalf of someone who put my family through a whole lot. You know, we know that we put you guys through a lot. And it's a thin line, you know, you want to show grace, but then you also don't want to be codependent. And at the end of the day, you have to follow after peace. There's many resources, many good people like yourself who you can go to and talk to and, you know, get some help and, you know, get some recommendations and some resources to help your family member. Because remember, that family member was like me when I was a little girl. I did not want to be a crackhead. 
my goal was to sing on Broadway, but I'm grateful now that I get to wake up every day and push hope and let people know that recovery is real. Anja Miles, thank you so much for being on the show and hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. Yes, I would love that. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.